Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the challenges and successes of immigrants in the United States. Be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss an episode. We are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today, we will be talking with uh, another interesting uh, person. Her name is Trisha J.C. McMurray, and um, we'll go right into introducing her and sharing with you a little bit about her background. Trisha J.C. McMurray hails from the language and cultural service industry and is based in northern New Jersey. Linguistic and multicultural program coordination have been the focus of her career, concentrating on language training, volunteer translation, and interpretation. She is a graduate of Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey, where she majored in Spanish. She started her career as an elementary Spanish teacher. Her mission was to both teach language and expose students to the diversity of Latin American and Caribbean cultures. As a global citizen, energized by bringing cultures together around a shared goal, she successfully conceptualized and planned language programs and events based on diversity of the Spanish-speaking world. The result of her planning and execution provided participants with an exposure to the products, practices, and perspectives of Mexico, Central and South America, the Caribbean, Spain, and Guinea Equatorial. It was during this time that she realized that she was more than a teacher in the classroom after conceptualizing, devising, and coordinating a school-wide Latin American celebration with food, music, and regalia from the British, Spanish, and Portuguese regions of Latin America and the Caribbean. Also, after an opportunity for newspaper reporters to come to the school and interview students with a subsequent publication in the Star Ledger. She knew that fulfilling her passion was beyond the classroom and subsequently between her early 20s to age 31, she sought to reconcile the lack of diversity among Latino and the Caribbean languages and cultures, as well as other ethnic groups against more positive representation through career entrepreneurship initiatives through magazine publication, restaurant related and language business initiatives and academia. For a while, she was also a volunteer liaison between Spanish-speaking patients and English-speaking staff at a healthcare facility. After years of seeing the diversity of Latino and Caribbean language culture and people go unnoticed, with inspiration from Christy Holberger, founder of the Latina magazine, she enrolled in the Master's in Publishing at NYU in New York City. 
She's gone overseas to St. Lucia and interviewed Caribbean cuisine chef and re- restaurateur Bobo Bergstrom. She also met with She Caribbean magazine founder May Wayne to get tips on starting a magazine. She later interned at a major Latin magazine in New York City. This experience prompted her to continue an advanced degree in Latin American and Caribbean studies, where she got her master's in 2009. Her specialization was hyphenated Latino and West Indian identity, focusing on Afro-Latino, Chinese Latino, and Indo-Caribbean people. After receiving her master's in 2009, she worked for Berlitz Languages Incorporated, where she remained for 10 years before returning to the public school system. She delivered new programs for pharmaceutical and telecommunication firms, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, private education institutions, and world travelers as a cruise ship language instructor on a prestigious cruise line. Aside from her professional and business initiatives, she was a project coordinator for New Jersey and New York Cures, as well as a member of the New York Circle of Translators and the American Translation Associ- Translators Association. Trisha speaks Spanish and English and hopes to pursue her interest in learning Brazilian, Portuguese, and Mandarin Chinese. Her interests are reading, travel, language, culture, salsa dancing, soca, and samba music cooking and spending time with her husband and family. Some of the causes close to her heart are immigration reform, family segregation and reunification, and positive representations of first-generation Americans of immigrant parents. Welcome, Trisha. Thank you for having me, Simone. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing lovely, thank you. So how are things going with you and your family at the moment? Oh, oh, going lovely, going lovely, where we're blessed, we're blessed. Very good, and thanks for being here on the show with us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. Can you go into sharing with us a little bit about your heritage? Sure, gladly. So my father, um, my father's side of the family, my father hails from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is in the British West Indies, Eastern Caribbean, north of Venezuela, and by Trinidad, Barbados, and Grenada. Now, my mom's side, my mom hails from Panama in Central America, which is bordered by Colombia and Costa Rica. Wonderful. Wow. Quite a mix of countries there. Yes, yes. So what motivated your interest in having a career that showcased your West Indian and Caribbean Latino background? as well as your affinity for different cultures and how have you tried to educate people of West Indian culture and Latin Latin culture as a first-generation American? Well, let's see how we can unpack this question. (laughs) Um, Very uh, interesting journey, uh, to say the least. Um, So I will start off by saying, um, as as far as, like I said, my father is uh, from St. Vincent, uh, Vincentian, Vinci, the nickname they call Vincentians. So I had uh, a Vincentian upbringing. My, well, other than uh, two other cousins, I'm the only cousin that was born here in the U.S. My other cousins were born in St. Vincent. So that was part of my upbringing. But it also was around uh, other Vincentians, family friends from St. Vincent. And me and my family, we used to go to 
par uh, fets or parties as they call them in the uh, Caribbean in Brooklyn and Queens. Um, and so that was part of my upbringing. I also remember going to the girls, the girls school had tea parties. And so I used to attend uh, those things with my family. So in the early stages, it was just upbringing around Vincentians. And then later on, I had associations around other family friends from the different Caribbean islands. So when I tell people that, and um, they're, they're fascinated, they, they're fascinated by how I could know which island someone is from and like how was I around all these Caribbean people the best way I could explain it is that you had a friend from St. Vincent a friend from Trinidad a friend from Barbados uh, some people from Jamaica they attended the University of the West Indies and it was there that they forged friendships that lasted forever and it carried over into their them immigrating to the United States and building their careers as doctors and starting a family. Um, so there was a point where they decided to have what we call card parties or the Pedro Club. Pedro is a game that's played, uh, card game that's played in St. Vincent, uh, started the card parties. And so it was all of these family friends and their family and the children and Every month we would rotate to a different family's house and the guys would play Pedro, the, the women would play Boggle and the kids would play together. And we as first generation American kids, they strategically did this to continue that West Indian camaraderie amongst themselves. But they also did this for us as first generation American uh, children to have exposure to our heritage and take a sense of pride in our culture. You know, um, they also exemplify, you know, West Indians are very much about education, instilling education, and they instill a sense of pride in yourself as at the same time being proud to be, um, be am amongst other people as well. So, so I am... God gave me the gifts of being multicultural. I'm multicultural by, um, by my background. And I also had that upbringing to further cultivate those values um, with, with the West Indian groups that I was around. Now, as far as my mom's side, um, with the exception of her, um, well, my, her eldest brother never left Panama and then her sisters and brothers lived here in, in the US, but extended family like cousins, aunts, uncles and so forth never left um, Panama. So in the absence of not having my Panamanian family around me uh, to speak Spanish, so to speak, I had association with other friends uh, who were first generation just like me first generation Latinos of different national descents but in the end you know we're around the culture and stuff like that but we're not really speaking Spanish so it was always um, a desire for me to take Spanish in school so that I could speak Spanish and when I go to Panama I could be able to speak Spanish with my family um, so like I said to you before the nature of a first generation American of foreign parents by nature, by default, you're multicultural. You're proud of who you are, uh, but you also have affinity for other cultures. And so not only did I grow up with that, that collective West Indian upbringing and that affinity for Latino culture, I also was very fascinated uh, by other cultures, learning about different people and different cultures. And so when you asked me the question about what motivated me to later do what I 
what I do. Wireless was a great experience, you know, um, in these interactions, I, I found that there was, I always saw myself as a cross-cultural interpreter wanting to bridge gaps. And so each group had certain preconceived notions about each other, like maybe West Indians might have been prejudiced towards Latinos, maybe Latinos might have been prejudiced towards West Indians. And then the, U, the general US population was prejudiced towards West Indian and Latinos and just any cultural group within the United States. And so when I was exposed to those different experiences, I, I always, when I was in each group, I was always like, I wish this group could see, really see the positive representation of this other group instead of feeding into stereotypical images. And I always, I, I was always like, how can I find a way to bridge that cultural gap, like to erase some of those negative stereotypes that each group had of each other as a first generation American? So, you know, early on, you know, people used to always say, oh, Trisha, you should work for the UN. You just have this international mindset. You know, when I, in school, when I used to, um, when they used to have show and tell, I was always bringing in something international, something from a different country or just sharing where my parents come from, bringing, I used to love when we used to have like cultural stuff where you have to bring in food from where your parents come from. I was always very excited about those things, you know, so I, I never knew that at a later point in time when I graduated high school that I would be able to put those passions to good use. Because like I said, unfortunately, in the U.S., we are a melting pot. We have people that come from all over the world. But unfortunately, the U.S. does not really embrace, if it's not um, English or United States culture, it's not cool, so to speak. And, and being that we are in a multicultural society, you think it would be different, but unfortunately it's not like, in, if you compare it to Europe, people speak at least three languages. They're very uh, cosmopolitan, more aware of different cultures, or more, not just aware, but more into learning about different cultures. And that's not really the experience here. So growing up, I never thought I could really put these passions to something until later on um, when, um, globalization, it was the rise of globalization and also the rise of the Hispanic population. And so therefore in the workplace, in um, the marketplace, it, it was necessary for people to now start learning different languages or being exposed to different cultures so that they could do business better when they, if their job sent them overseas, they had to now be able to be, uh, have linguistic and cultural competencies. Um, in order to do their job better. So I saw this as an opportunity to, um, to be able to apply my passion somewhere. So before graduate, around the time I was graduating, there was a lady named uh, Christy Haubegger. Uh, her name was Christy Haubegger. And she was a Mexican-American and she never saw images of first generation Latinas or just Latinas in general in the media. And so she wanted to create a magazine that reflected those images. And she got help, I believe it was from the founder of Essence Magazine. Uh, and he helped her to get off the ground and it became a very successful magazine. And that was inspiration for me because I, it, I, it was inspirational for me to see that a first generation American Latina could start a magazine to represent Latin, uh, first generation Latinas are just Latinos in general, but it also gave me inspiration to 
when I read through those um, magazine articles and even saw articles of people that are Latinas, but maybe um, not your typical Latina, maybe Afro-Latino, maybe Chino-Latino or white Latino, and they talk about their experiences of having to negotiate their identity. I saw an avenue for me to create my own magazine that would represent not just Latinos of diverse backgrounds, but West Indians of diverse backgrounds. Like I said, growing up with that West Indian experience, that exposure, I was exposed to the richness and the beauty of the culture. And us as first generation Americans had that great experience where we had our Caribbean heritage, our culture, and we were born here in the US. So we have our American culture. So we balancing both worlds. And I just felt like there was a market for us to, to be represented. And what a great way in the form of a magazine. And when I think about, you know, all the actresses out there that talk, I've heard them talk about their experiences. You have the Tatiana Ali, who's, Tatiana Ali is actually just like me. Um, the only difference is her father's Trinidadian and her mom is Panamanian. I'm Vincentian and Panamanian. But she talks about those experiences. You have Gina Torres, who is Afro-Cuban American. Las Alonso, who's also of Afro-Cuban descent. Tess Ann Chin, who's Chinese Jamaican. Melanie Fiona, who's uh, Indo-Portuguese and Black Guyanese, Huey Dunbar, who's Jamaican and Puerto Rican, uh, Carrie Washington, who's half Jamaican, half African-American, Kamala Harris, who's Indian and Jamaican-American, Soledad O'Brien, who's Afro-Cuban, of Afro-Cuban and Australian descent. Um, you also have Adrian Bailon, who's the co-host of the daytime talk show, The Real, who's Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican. So even within the Latino culture, um, diversity, uh, Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican culture, and diversity within the West Indian culture. You have um, Deval Ellis. I'm sorry, Deval Ellis. He is on one of the Tyler Perry's hit shows called Sisters, and his wife, Kadeen Ellis, she is American of Jamaican and Vincentian descent. You know, mm -hmm. and and then even um, even um, and just in my everyday life, I have a family friend, Debbie King, who's the senior vice president of marketing communications and culture for Velocity, which is Viacom, CBS, now Paramount, um, who's doing well, who's doing well. You know, Maxwell, Haitian, Puerto Rican descent. And another family friend of mine, Kalila Arthur, the founder of Corn Crush, who created these recipes based on her Caribbean upbringing. And she wanted to celebrate that by having a business. I saw a... a a, a platform where people could be represented and I wanted to have this magazine. But like every entrepreneurial endeavor, you have to start off your profession, profession and you have to work and save up your money so that you could ultimately do, do those things. Upon graduation from college, I was um, an elementary uh, Spanish teacher. And in that experience, I was working in an underserved community. And I, especially because of the environment I was working in, I know that they did not have prior exposure. And so I wanted to make a contribution by not only teaching language, but exposing children to the diversity of Latino and Caribbean culture. I had a family friend that worked for the UN. She would give me stuff from the UN. I decorated the whole school so they could see the diversity as they come into the school. So I'm not just teaching language, but I'm teaching about the culture. And so at the end of the year, there was a uh, diversity around the Latin world party. Uh, ultimately, it, I had reporters come from this uh, Star Ledger magazine 
and they uh, interviewed the students and there was a write-up in the magazine. And so during, during that time there, I realized that my, pa- my passion was more than just being in the classroom and I really had to spend my 20s up until 30 um, pursuing professional entrepreneurial uh, and entrepreneurial goals and ultimately getting um, a PhD by 30 because you know after 30 you're thinking about settling down getting married and having kids so I, I knew I had to uh, push these uh, in my 20s to 30s I like I said I sought to reconcile the lack of diversity among Latino and Caribbean languages and cultures and other ethnic groups against positive representations through my career initiatives, through entrepreneurship initiatives, through magazine publication, later restaurant initiatives, um, language business, and ultimately academia. So just to take you through the the process, um, I, so I I taught K to five for a time, and then I had moved on. I had worked through a clinic. I, there were translators there that were from Rutgers University, the master's in translation program. And I, that was the first time I realized that there was a master's in translation. And so when they were busy, I would help with translation interpretation. Um, And during this time, I joined the American Circle of Translators um, so that maybe I could expand my career in this avenue. Um, I also, um, like I said, I, I was trying to plant the seeds in my 20s, trying to find ways to um, celebrate Latin American culture in many different avenues. So I was a very busy girl during this time. So I had an early experience going to Maryland and um, with some family friends and we went to a Pan-Asian restaurant. And so the restaurant had a buffet with foods from all the different Asian countries. And I thought that was such a great idea. And I said, that would be such a great idea to have that in the form of a a pan-ethnic Latino and West Indian restaurant, because in both cultures, the food is very diverse. And I just, I just wanted people to be exposed to the beauty of the cuisine and the, and the food. Um, But during that time, people suggested to me, you know, there was a lot of turnover in restaurants, a lot of restaurants start up and then they close. Um, But maybe what I could do, I was, ta- I was talking about magazines, I was talking about publications and all this stuff. They say, maybe you could be a food critic. You could talk about West Indian food. You could talk about uh, Latin food. You could talk about different cuisines, just in general. And being a food critic, you get to satisfy your passion for exposing people to the beauty of West Indian Latin culture through doing that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a restaurant. So in my networking contacts, I met with a lady that uh, during that time I was traveling to St. Lucia with a friend of mine who was originally from there. And she said, that's great that you're going to St. Lucia because there's actually a a chef. He's originally from Sweden, but he uh, had a passion for Caribbean uh, cuisine. And so he was based out of St. Lucia. And she said he could be your first subject to interview. Um, At the same time, I also discovered that there was a magazine called She Caribbean for not Caribbean American women, but for Caribbean women. And I really liked uh, that magazine as well in terms of exposing the beauty of Caribbean culture. Um, So while I was in St. Lucia, I had the great opportunity to interview the chef and also meet with the, the publisher for She Caribbean to get tips on how to start my own magazine. 
So when I came back to the United States, I, I had applied to the master's in translation, master's in publishing, and master's in Latin and Caribbean studies. And wherever I, I got accepted to, that would be where I would take my passion towards. So unfortunately, I never got accepted to the master's in translation, but I got accepted to um, the master's in publishing. There was a summer publishing institute, which I was able to start, which would give me six credits towards my master's in publishing, give, give me an early start. And I also got uh, accepted to the master's in Latin American Caribbean studies. So I was conflicted as to which one to start first. Um, the, the master's in Latin American Caribbean studies was my, was ultimately going to lead to a PhD in, in um, Latin American Caribbean studies because after I achieved all my career and business success, I eventually wanted to end up as a professor in Latin American Caribbean studies. So since I was focused on the magazine idea, I had deferred with the Latin American Caribbean studies for a year while I started my master's in publishing. And the great thing about this program was that you either specialize in book publication or magazine publication for which I specialize in, in magazine publication. And your master's thesis would be your ultimate business plan, which, you, which you, you would take with you after the program to now go and build networks and try to get your business off the ground. So I was very excited about joining this program, but uh, also unfortunately disappointed with the lack of support for the the magazine initiative that I had, the goal that I had, the audience that I that I for which this magazine was going to represent, uh, people weren't as supportive, and I, I I guess felt that this magazine idea was not going to work. During this during this time, I was able to get an internship at a very popular Latin magazine. And there again, the experience there was not what I had expected, but at that point I realized, and also magazines were going digital. So things were changing in the magazine industry as well. So it was there I had to decide, am I gonna continue, finish out the masters in publishing or am I just going to uh, contact the masters in Latin American Caribbean studies and say I would come that fall and finish out with that program. And that's ultimately what I did, the experience at Latina magazine inspired me to um, go into the Latin American Caribbean studies program where I focused on hyphenated West Indian and Latino identity. Like I said, I focus on Afro and Caribbean Latino identity, um, Chino Latino identity and Indo-Caribbean uh, identity. So I got my master's in Latin American Caribbean studies in 2009. And after graduating there, I figured, okay, now let me get back into my profession. Um, the magazine idea didn't work out. So let, I, I, I wanted to work at Rosetta Stone, but I got an opportunity for Berlitz Languages Inc where I stayed for 10 years. And I worked with um, pharmaceutical clients, FBI agents. And I was also during my time there, the 10 years there, I went on as a cruise director on a cruise ship to teach languages. Um, before returning back to the public school um, where I was exposed to middle and high school children. Um, at this time, I was getting my certification in Spanish and ESL. While, while um, 
being told by someone, uh, I was told by someone about a community-based program called Rising Tide Capital, where they helped you with business plans and help you to develop the business ideas that you had. Um, during my time at Berlitz, my teaching experience enabled me to get the job there, but I wanted to learn the business, the, um, the business sides of running a business. And so I tried to transition into management, but unfortunately people that had an MBA background were getting the jobs over me. So I never got to get that experience. So I had the opportunity to find out about Rising Tide Capital where you could work on a business plan. And even after you graduate from the academy, you could still uh, have those connections and networks with people that could help you to find funding and to help you to build your business idea. So at this point in time, I've come full circle. I, like I said, when I returned back to the public school, I did middle school and high school, but now I've come back full circle to elementary. And during this time, I was able to reconnect with a friend, Deborah Lockhart, who has been in, in business for 15 years now with her um, business called The Language Shop. And so we have made a connection and I am also a project coordinate, coordinator there. And I, I feel like my journey has come full circle because she's equally passionate about passionate about the things that I am passionate about. With a language business, people don't understand it's not just about selling language, but it's also about um, maintaining the linguistic and cultural integrity of languages and cultures, even within one language pair. And my, pa my passion for exposing people to positive images of language and culture, this job enables me to do just that. So, um, like I said, you know, I, I, I went over a little over my 30s trying to pursue this stuff. And like I said, um, I had to uh, put things on hold because like I said, I eventually I got married and then you have a goal of wanting to have kids. So, you know, your path kind of changes a little bit, but though basically that is what motivated me to to pursue what I pursued in my 20s and in, in my early 30s and those are the ways that I've tried to educate um, people on West Indian and Latin culture as a first generation American. Okay wonderful great to hear. You have passion and you know what you want and you're, you're trying to navigate the challenges. I, I have to learn that Pijo game that you mentioned from St. Vincent. Yeah, Never. I have to get with my dad again and learn it or he was trying to show me how to do it. But, um, yes, I, it yes. sounds quite interesting. And I love yeah. the fact that the the group of um, folks there that went to Yui Mona have, you know, how they, you know, kept their children together and created that safe space for them to interact and continue the relationship. So yeah. I really love that um, yeah. um, dynamic there. Um, so you mentioned that you didn't get the support when you wanted to um, go into publishing because perhaps they didn't think that there was a market for it. Can you speak to, um, you know, some of the other challenges and that challenge in specific, like who were some of the people and what was the challenge and why they didn't, you know, I don't know, not necessarily to mention names, but yes. specifically what were those challenges that you were um, facing in pursuit of your I would say your American dream. Yes. So my American dream is 
entrepreneurship. Like I, like I said, I, I had great examples, uh, role models, uh, whether you were a doctor, a lawyer, a working class person, um, it was always stress and education and working hard and doing your job well. And I saw those great examples um, from family, friends, and my father, first and foremost in the household. Um, but, you know, seeing that work ethic and how hard he worked, you know, getting out very early in the morning and going into the city and working hard all these years, I knew I wanted to pass on that tradition, uh, continue this legacy through entrepreneurship. Um, so that was my American dream, you know, as a first generation American of immigrant parents to set the example by being an entrepreneur. The challenge, you know, the, like I talked about a little bit, um, as, you, as you've heard me speak, you know, when you have a passion for something, this passion could just take you all over the place. And, you know, uh -huh. you can hear, I've had very ambitious goals and ambitious goals, you know, cost a lot of money. So you're going to have to get a lot of people that are going to support what you want to do. And like I said, you also can't just, you know, snap your fingers and you have a business overnight. You have to work and save up money and, and work towards that, you know, so um in the program, um, I actually, the, we, we had like, um, they divide us into groups and we had to come up with a mock uh, book publication or magazine publication. So you're and referring to when you were pursuing your master's in publishing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so they wanted us to get the feel of starting a magazine and starting a book publication so we had to act like we were the publishers and understand the financial background we had to actually go through the process and do do like a a mock a mock launch of a magazine or a book publication and I thought my idea was great and that uh you know I don't want to say that there weren't people that were not intrigued and fascinated by my idea before I got into the program, I would tell people and they were very excited and stuff like that. I think maybe the challenge is that I had like multiple audiences that I wanted to try to reach. And I guess people felt like, could I really do that? Could I really reach all of these people, you know, um, with such diverse backgrounds, you know? Right. Um, so I think the challenge was getting them to... Uh, I could see the credibility in, in, in the um, initiative that I had. Right. Uh, also, one th unfortunately, what I realized, uh, ultimately my, my magazine idea, I did get awarded for it, but to the outside audience, they awarded me for it, but no one knew about the struggles I was going behind, going through behind closed doors. So, um, like I said, in the U.S., we are a multi uh, uh, melting pot of right. from all over the world. But unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't really embrace multiculturalism. It kind of looks down upon it. Everyone is kind of like to themselves, you know, into their own culture, you know. So me coming now with this multicultural approach, I guess people kind of um, didn't know how to take me. You know, so, uh -huh. which is so um, weird because we're a culture 
from from the start we're a country of immigrants yes right everybody comes from somewhere else but yet it is it seems that the whole idea of Im- being an immigrant is supposed to be this taboo thing that you don't talk about that you don't celebrate but this is who we are so it's quite the, the, nation the of strangest thing yeah. it, it, it's, a con- it's like a country it's like a contradiction it makes no sense you right know, so whereas I felt like I would have been received warmly about this like when I would get together with the group um I, I could just see the resentment like they just didn't really feel it and and uh, what was a little upsetting to me and I'll talk about that a little later on a little further um like I said I'm a first generation American immigrant parents but I'm a first generation American of color you know, okay. uh-huh. that, comes, that comes with all sorts of unique challenges, right. you know, rewarding and challenging at the same time. So I had, there was one girl in the group who is a fellow black person just like me, but she's American. And I guess she assumed that I was just hundred percent American too. So now when I came with this idea about West Indian and Latino descent, I felt like I got the impression that she felt that I was the enemy now, like, no, I'm no longer cool anymore. And I felt like her behavior towards me changed um mm. and then also be people in other group change and then my time there like I you know at times I felt alone you know I felt like wow God put this in me and but then when you go and put your idea there and people don't feel what you're doing you could feel alone sometimes and start questioning yourself like should I be doing this right you know? right I get it I get it completely so I so so again, like the, the challenge was getting people to see me as a credible person to want to do this. And then also it changed relationships of people because for whatever preconceived notion they have about me and the people, my ancestors or, you know, Latinos or West Indians are just cultures in general. It, it made them kind of turn against me and it was mm upsetting to me you know right right have you ever considered that maybe they saw the potential in the idea and the value and you know I mean sometimes unfortunately you know people will see your light and the potential for something that you're going after and um it makes them it makes them um I don't know how to fully explain it but they they you you go from being the pet of being somebody who's loved to somebody who's now the threat because of yeah. what the value that you bring to the table and they see what you could potentially accomplish and how powerful the idea was have you ever thought that maybe that was the issue you know what I I, I think at moments I did think that um and but I think like, like I said I I had all these goals to fulfill up until 30 so yes when I, I, I felt like I didn't have time to sit there and think about it and feel the pain. I had to keep moving. I had to keep moving. I had to keep moving. But later on in yeah. life, I reflected back. I did, I, that did kind of cross my mind that perhaps that could have been it, but you know, it's easier said than done, you know, like um, it, it's, it's one thing to say that maybe they did see it as a threat, but when you go through the experience, it's just, it's a completely different thing, you know? And it's very painful. It's very painful. Yeah. Yes. And then, like I said, I was very, through the networks, through going through this program, I was really happy to get the internship um, at the Latin magazine. But like I said, the founder that start for the very reason she started this magazine to uh, 
to celebrate the diversity amongst Latinos and stuff like that, first generation American and Latinos in general, I found prejudicial uh, behavior when I was there, which was a complete uh, shock to me. And, and again, mm. I had a short internship and then I realized that I, I, I I don't want to say I felt jaded, but I started to wonder, is my magazine actually going to work? Because here I come for this magazine that I admire, and then I'm experiencing this in, uh, in here. And yes. so it's, it, you just feel like you have nowhere to go, you know? So, oh, wow. So, so those were the challenges that I experienced. And also, you know, friends and family love you and everything. But I, when you have such a big vision, people can't see it the way you do. So you have to, so that was a little of the challenge, but it was a little bit of a challenge. But at the same time, I was very proactive. I said, well, you know, let me find some objective that could probably uh, be more open to you know, my goals and kind of direct me in the right path. So I had interviewed life coaches during that time. And looking back, I probably could have made the sacrifice, but I felt like maybe some of them were too expensive. So I did continue with the process. But one one, um, life coach, she said, okay, if we don't continue this coaching relationship, one thing I would suggest that you do is you get the book, The Artist Way. It's about creative people that got stuck and how you put it again. And that book, coupled with Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, produce um, this huge collage that I have at my house right now. It took over 10 years to finish. Wow. Like my moral compass. It's like my vision board, you know, and it reflects who I am, what I'm passionate about, my interests and my value set. And to get over the challenges that I had, I found that once I did this, once I, I looked at this and let this guide me, it led me to the right opportunities um, and the, the, the right type of relationships. I will say at times when, I strayed away from it. I felt like life fell apart and things weren't working out. But I always know that I have that vision board that is like my compass. To- oh, that is so good. I'm such an avid vision boarder too. Yes, I, I love it. <laughs> it I, I, I believe in it. I believe in it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Join us next week for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.